second service. Okay, so today we're talking about faithfulness. This is the last Sunday in the series, and um, the series was The Road to Victory, Some Neglected Aspects of Our Journey. And so we've gone, and uh, in fact, I just made a list of the things we've talked about. We've talked about things like suffering, Christ-likeness, maturity, generosity, balance, dependence. And each of those Sundays, we stopped and stepped back and said, let's look at a a piece of that that we often overlook or haven't thought of before. We're going to do the same thing today with faithfulness. When it comes to faithfulness, it's very easy to, to begin to tell you what you should do. But I don't have to do that. You saw how many of you are standing. You already got it figured out. I want to address a different question in regard to faithfulness is why? Why? Or even more deeply rooted under that, what is the motivation for our faithfulness? Now let's think just for a moment about how God, uh, we covered some of this in maturity, but how God brings us along, and I'm using that term on purpose, God brings us along when it comes to faithfulness. You see, everything that you need to be faithful originates with the Holy Spirit. Everything. Remember the uh, uh, fruit of the Spirit? Love. What's the next one? Peace. Patience. Kindness. Goodness. What's that? What is it? Faithfulness. Faithfulness. Everything we need on the journey originates with the Holy Spirit. So we start at the beginning of our Christian life with a real simple relationship. We don't know much more than that. It's really interesting when you look at how the gospel is shared in, the, uh, in Acts, both Peter and Paul. The way they shared the gospel is very consistent. We tend to focus on the work of Christ. They tended to focus on the person of Christ. Let me tell you about Jesus. We were at... Um, we were at Pug Ryan's one night, and I wanted to illustrate this. Uh, the Ilches, I saw them come in. Where are they? Bill, are you here? Bill Ilch? Ah, sitting in the very back. So Bill joined, joined us, and it was, it was his first time at, at uh, Pub Theology. So I introduced him. I said, this is Bill. That's all everybody knew. Pretty soon everybody's talking to him and everything. So when he got into the conversation on uh, what does it look like to actually share our faith, we tend to... Uh, if you will, unload the whole package right up front. And that's not what they did in Acts. What they said was, let me tell you about Jesus. When the Philippian jailer came to Paul, he said, what do I need to do to be saved? And he said, believe in Jesus. It was that simple. A name, there's only one name under heaven by which people are saved. That's the name of Jesus. So I mentioned Bill. I said, all I've told you is Bill's name. And you already have a relationship with him. You don't know anything about him. That's all it takes to establish a relationship. The name of Jesus. You have a Savior. His name is Jesus. And that was a common way the first century church evangelized when they told their friends. They began to give more information as time goes by as the relationship starts to grow. So most of Paul's letters are written to churches that he's planted uh, years after the fact. When he finally begins to fill in the details of what actually happened, what happened that caused you about, came, brought about your regeneration? Yes, it's the cross, absolutely, and all of that. That's the center of our gospel. Starts with a name. So on the day you come to know the Lord, you know very little. You just know about Jesus. And then you begin that journey, 
The verb walking is used all throughout Scripture. It's the main verb throughout the book of Ephesians. And it's a verb that describes the process. We walk and we learn, we walk and we learn. And by the time you get to the end of the process, as you're about to enter glory, you have a deep and abiding faith. Your knowledge about the Lord has grown tremendously. Your experience with the Lord has grown in so many ways. You've experienced so many things by the time you get to here that, that you recognize that the Lord is real. I don't know how, but I can tell you this, I would die for him. Romans 8, his spirit attests to my spirit that I am his child. How does that happen? I can't really tell you, but I can tell you it does. So one thing you can't take away from me is my faith. I've said many times, and some of you have heard it several times, that to me the greatest sign of victory is that you can't walk away. You just can't. I was at uh, Pugs the other night with a friend, and he brought a young guy with him. Uh, young to me is 27, by the way. And uh, so the guy's sitting there, and, and we've had more than one conversation, and this guy said, so you're a pastor. Why is sex before marriage wrong? And I just started laughing, and I said, you can't get away from it, can you? What do you mean? Your Catholic upbringing. You can be angry. You can throw things at God. You can do all that, but you can't walk away from it, can you? And he goes, no, and that kind of makes me mad. And I said, well, it makes me laugh. (laughs) And we had a great conversation. We met again yesterday and talked. He just can't get away from it. Something about that regeneration, when you hear the truth, you can't walk away. You can get mad. You can curse God. Got examples of all that. You can throw things at God. You can yell and scream. You can drag your feet. You can do whatever you want, but you can't walk away. That, by the way, for you young people, sorry to tell you this, that's the catch-22, that's the curse we embed in our children. They can't walk away. They can fight. And they can disobey, they can rebel. They, yeah, I'm looking at you. Because <laughs> I know you. <laughs> they can yell and they can scream. Oh, there's another one over here. <laughs> but it's so hard to walk away. You always have at the back of your mind that question mark. That's the beginning of the road to faith, to faithfulness. You see, what God does is He begins to bring into us, into our lives, all kinds of experiences uh, that we just can't get away from it. Because God does begin to superintend your life. You may think you're in control. Sorry. You have a sovereign God who cares about everything that happens. And he begins to bring those experiences in. So I want to take a look at Moses. Because Moses gives us just a glimpse of what this journey looks like. Okay? Uh, By the way, I asked about the veterans because in the the Bible, what you find is a pretty simple but consistent principle. Early in your Christian life, when you want to accomplish great things for the Lord, he's usually working more in you. He's shaping that heart. He's building that faith. He's increasing that trust. As you begin to move into the second half of your life, when you're no longer thinking about doing all those great things for the Lord, uh, life has now encumbered you a little bit and you've already accomplished some things, that's when he begins to work through you. So most of the stuff that happens, happens in the second part of life, the Christian walk. All that to say for your young people, just be patient. 
for your old people, um, I'll let you define what that is. You should jump up and down and celebrate. Moses was about 80 when God met him at the burning bush. Spent 40 years wandering in the desert to learn what God wanted him to learn until the Israelites were ready. Paul spent 14 years in and around Antioch teaching before God finally said, it's your turn. Get out there. And so it's a consistent pattern early in life when you don't know very much. God is teaching you about him. And most of the work he's doing is in you. And as you move through life, he begins to work more through you into the lives of those around you. So those of you that are older, praise Jesus. We need you. We need you. So Moses is no exception. So I'm going to look at a couple things in Moses' life. And this is coming out of the book of Exodus. Okay? So in Exodus chapter 3 is a famous story of the burning bush. Exodus 3, um, Moses is tending the flock. He's out in the desert. He's out in the wilderness. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in the flames of fire within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it didn't burn up. So what would you do if you saw a bush on fire and it didn't burn up? You'd probably wander over to see what's going on, right? That's what Moses did. So the Lord saw that he had gone over to take a look. God, here's the word. God called to him from within the bush. Moses, Moses, Moses said, I'm here. Here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid, afraid to look at God. Right off the bat, we learn several things here. Uh, First of all, he called to him. If you are a believer in Christ, you have been called. Salvation is one of those places where God calls you. And the great thing about being a Christian, especially a veteran Christian, is that when you're talking to people, you recognize God's handiwork long before they do. Long before they do. So you've heard me tell the story, some of you, of a young man who called me up. I was sitting in my office. He said, can I come see you right now? I go, yeah, sure. So he walks into my office. It's one of the ironies of my life. I love ironies. They just make me laugh. So I'm sitting in my office. If you've seen it, been in my office, you see 2,000 books. All of them are about God, except two, a German dictionary and a French dictionary. The rest are about God. So this young man comes in and sits down, and he said, I heard that uh, I heard that I could meet with you, and you could kind of help me. And I said, sure. What's your name? What's going on? And all that. So he was guilty in another state of a felony. In the process of the felony, his best friend got killed. So he spent six years in a penitentiary. And he's out. He moved up here to get away. And as part of the penitentiary, he had to go to counseling. And the counseling said, and he's telling me the story. He's crying, trying to make sense of life. I mean, his whole adult life has been in a jail. <laughs> and so he says, my, my counselor said, I need to figure out what I think about spiritual things. He said, can you believe it? Does anybody believe in God these days? He's never been in a church, doesn't know what a pastor is, doesn't realize he's sitting with 2,000 books dealing with God. It's just one of the ironies of life. And I said, well, uh, actually, I do. Okay, now, he said, you do? Really? I said, yeah. And he goes, well, could this be karma? <laughs> said, well, let's assume, for the, just for the sake of argument, let's assume that there's a one true living God. Would you want that God to believe in karma? And he said, well, no. I said, oh, my God doesn't believe in karma. He goes, oh, awesome. 
I, by the way, how did you get my name? He pulls a slip of paper out. This has happened about six times. I don't know which of you is doing this. <laughs> He's in a store, and somebody says, are you okay? You look a little down. He goes, yeah, I just moved here, and I'm struggling and a little discouraged. And they wrote down Jim Howard and my cell phone. I'm not going to tell you what it is because you keep using it. And <laughs> it's in the bulletin, sadly. <laughs> and they handed it to him and said, call this guy. He'll help you. That's all he knows. I have no idea which of you did that. That's happened five or six times. Okay, now I'm sitting here as a veteran Christian trying not to laugh because I see evidence of God's fingerprints all over this young man. All over this young man. And, uh, and he has no clue. He can't see it. God called to him from within the bush. That's what happens. That's the process way back here when you begin to meet the Lord. By the way, a little bit later he had to go to surgery and he was terrified and I, so I drove over to pray with him at the hospital. And I said, what are you frightened of? And he said, what if I don't wake up? I said, yeah, your time hasn't come, buddy. Don't worry about it. You know, you're going to do fine. They're going to go in and fix the thing that's broken. About that time, Nate Love, who sits over here, walks around the corner. He's the head nurse over there for that surgery, I guess. And he walks in. I said, Nate, are you in charge of this guy? And he goes, yeah. And I said, this guy just said he's terrified he's going to die. Nate walks up at last, put his arm on his. He goes, you're not going to die today. It's not your time. We got work to do with you. And uh, we recognize, as veteran Christians, God's handiwork in the life of others. That's the first thing that happened, God calls you. Now, that calling takes interesting, it takes a lot of interesting directions. We know for sure all of you are called to salvation. We know that you're called to use your spiritual gift. You're called to be a part of a fellowship and to participate with us. Some of you are called for even greater things, more, I shouldn't say greater things, uh, you're called to more unusual things than that. Sometimes God calls people for very unique circumstances. God might be calling you to be a missionary, for example. Don't, don't do what Jonah did and run the other direction. God just shouts a little louder. That's all that happens. Okay? Don't run the other direction or you're going to find yourself in a boat in the middle of a lake with a storm that's about to kill you. That's never good. What is God calling you to? Some of you have felt a very specific calling. It doesn't happen to all of us. That's God's grace, by the way. Um, But some of you have. If you're feeling that call, listen to it. Talk to Paul Wardlaw, Paul and Donna about the call fascinating story of how God got their attention. I can give you mine if you want to hear it. Uh, Why am I standing here today? I never wanted to be a pastor. Never in my life did I want to be a pastor. It's the last thing I wanted to do was be a pastor. And here I am. Still don't want to be a pastor. No, I shouldn't say that. (laughs) Not true. So God called him. Then when you get over, when you go from there to uh, Exodus 4, you find a sense of equipping. Um, I'm sorry, Exodus... Let me see where I'm going here. Yeah, um, Exodus 4. Moses is not sure he wants to do this task. God said, you're going to go back to Israel, and you're going to go face Pharaoh. It's like saying, you're going to go talk to the President of the United States. Who do you would want to do that? And tell him he's wrong. <laughs> A few hands go up. <laughs> I love it. So he's, he's going back. So Moses says, well, what if they do not believe me or listen to me and say the Lord did not appear to you? The Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? He goes, it's a staff. He goes, throw it on the ground. Throws it on the ground. It became a snake. And he ran from it. 
So this whole section here is about how the Lord begins to equip Moses with the tools to do the job. So not only does he call us, he begins to equip us. By the way, Ephesians 4, that wonderful passage, and God gave gifts to the church, right? Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors and teachers. Why? For the equipping of the saints, of Christians, to do the ministry. That's why. He doesn't call Mark and me to do the ministry. He calls us to equip you to do the ministry. Now, I happen to love doing the ministry, so I do as much as I possibly can. But my primary role is to equip you to do it, to help you to know how to think about it. If you ever want to go on a hospital visit, let me know. You want to go visit somebody who's sick and talk to me, let me know that. You can go with me. It's wonderful. It's one of the best experiences in the world to be there. I love it. People say, I'm going in for surgery next week, and I say, great, I'll be there. What time is your surgery? Ah, you don't have to come. 7 o'clock? Okay, I'll be there at 5.30. I know how it works. Now you don't have to come. Really, it's fine. I know. Ice come, comes, I went to. I get there at 5.30, and guess what? They're almost always anxious. Because no matter how many times you've had surgery, there's always that thought of, what's going to happen when I wake up? What if I don't wake up? Is it going to be painful when I wake up? And so many of you have been under, been there when Mark or I have shown up or the elders and prayed for you. And I know you appreciate it because you tell us. So you have this whole equipping thing going on here. Then you get into chapter 6 and you have this concept of now it's time to start your ministry. The Lord said to Moses, now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of the country. God said to Moses, I am Yahweh. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. Why does he keep saying that? I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Why? He uses that over and over and over again. Because he's telling Moses, I am the God of the living, not the dead. He doesn't say, I was the God. I am the God. I am the God. God is the God of the living. And these folks have died. So he's reminding him, I am sovereign. They are still alive and they are under my care. I am their God. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them, fully known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan where they resided as foreigners. And he goes on down through and says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to free you. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I'm going to free you from being slaves to them. Verse 6. I'm going to redeem you with an outstretched arm. Verse 7. I will take you as my own people. I will be your God and you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. So what he's saying is, Get going. Start. Go tell the people this. Go to Pharaoh. Go to the Israelites. Do your thing. So he's called you. This is a description of life. He calls us to salvation, and we believe in him. We know his name, and then we begin the journey of equipping. It depends on how hard-headed you are. That could take a while. Okay? Moses took 40 years. Uh, Paul took 14 years. I don't know how long it took me. It was a long time. Okay, And he'll equip you. You begin that journey where you get into a fellowship and you start learning these wonderful truths about who this God is. Do you really believe that there's a sovereign God who cares about you? Do you really believe that? If you're sitting here and you've been a Christian 30 or 40 years, I already know the answer to that. You wouldn't be here if you didn't. 
But what about you younger people? Do you really believe that? That there is a God who loves you and he does everything to work that through in your life. Everything to begin to make sense. Then we're going to jump all the way over to Exodus 34. There's a lot of stuff in between we could look at, but all I'm trying to do is just give you a snapshot. Exodus 34 is, um, this is just after the uh, golden calf. So they've been out for, you know, um, three months or so. They're starting their wanderings. They're out of Egypt, um, and they, they build this golden calf. Moses goes up on the mountain to get the Ten Commandments, comes back down. They built the golden calf. Moses smashes the Ten Commandments on the rocks. You know the story. And, um, and so Moses is having a conversation with God. In verse 12, Moses said to the Lord, You have been telling me, lead these people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. By the way, just before that, Moses says, These are your people, not mine. I just love that. That's sometimes how I feel about you. No, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> you have said, I know you by name, and you have found favor with me. If you are pleased with me, teach me your way so that I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people, they're yours, they're not mine. I actually do remind the Lord of that, not because I don't like you. It's because it's his responsibility to shape you as a congregation. We're just tools in his hand. We're called gifts, Ephesians 4. Mark and I love being gifts, and uh, we are gifts to be used. But it's his responsibility, what happens to you. So the Lord replied, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. Then Moses said to him, if your presence does not go up with, with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me from your pe- and your people from all the other peoples on the face of the earth? Ooh, isn't that a great question? Lord, be present with us. How else will they know that we're your people if you're not here? Be present. Answer our prayers. Heal the sick. Bring about equipping, maturing. Do all that work. How are they going to know? It's possible to build a church without the Lord. It's not possible to spread the kingdom without the Lord. And that's what we're interested in is that. The Lord said to Moses, verse 17, I will do the very thing you have asked because I am pleased with you and I know you by name. Then Moses said, show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you and I will proclaim my name, Yahweh, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face for no one may see me and live. This is the story that John uses in John 1 that says, no one has seen God at any time. Ever. But the only begotten one, Jesus, who is himself God, John says in chapter 1, he has revealed him. This is why Jesus becomes so critical in Christian theology. As Jesus said to Philip, show us the Father and that will be enough. And what did he say? Have you been with me these three years? You don't get it? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. No one has seen God at any time. But Jesus has revealed him. So that was in chapter 33. Then when you get to chapter 34, 
He goes back up on the mountain, verse 4, and he chisels out two stone tablets like the first ones and went up Mount Sinai early in the morning, carried them with him. The Lord came down in a cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name. Remember he just said, my presence will be with you? So listen to what it says. The Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with Moses and proclaimed his own name, Yahweh. He said he was going to do that. I'm going to continue to tell you my name because I want you to know that I am your God. You are my people. And he passed in front of Moses, and this is what he says, Yahweh, Yahweh. He says his name twice, twice. The compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. This introduces a word that we see all throughout the Old Testament. It's the Hebrew word chesed. doesn't mean anything to you. It's just really fun to say. Chesed. It's the word that we has all these ideas wrapped together. It has the word idea of love. It has the idea of the kindness of God. It has the idea of God's covenant loyalty. He made a promise and he's not going to forget. That's what we're about to celebrate with communion. Remember me, Jesus said. Do this in remembrance of me. He remembered his promise to us. That's all wrapped up in this word. It's a rich, rich word. Often in your English translations, they translate it as loving or loving kindness, something like that. But it's a very rich word that cap- it carries all of Old Testament theology on its shoulders because it tells us how wonderful God is. And this is what he says right here. So God is not only going to equip you, but there's deep encouragement on the journey. Here, this is what he says to Moses. As Moses is standing alone with him, he gives him his name, Yahweh, Yahweh. Compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. That's the God that we serve. Now, most of you won't really get to that point until you're down the road a little ways and you begin to see it. You lose someone and God shows up and the grace is there. You find out you have cancer and God shows up. He never abandons you. He may be silent, but that's not the same as abandonment. Sometimes he's silent, standing in the shadows, watching you manage your faith to see it grow but he never leaves. In fact, wasn't that Jesus' promise? I'm with you always. Right? And I'm not only that, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. So you got two of us. He never leaves. He's sometimes silent. Don't mistake that for abandonment because it's not. Now, when you look at numbers, a little bit later on, Moses is held up all throughout here. Um, all throughout the New Testament as a pretty, pretty righteous person. What happens when you sin? Well, when you get, um, 